Right, let's get straight to it. December the 31st, the stroke of uh, midnight. We all say to each other, don't we, Happy New Year! And it's all very exciting. And then we sing. What do we sing? I'm not going to ask you to sing, it's okay. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Al's just beaming now because it's Scottish. Yeah. Should old acquaintance be forgot for the sake of old Lang Syne? For old Lang Syne, my dear, for old Lang Syne. We'll take a couple of kindness, dear, for the sake of old Lang Syne. Does anyone actually know, apart from Al, what old Lang Syne actually means? Because you sing it. Well, loosely translated, I think, it means for the sake of old times, uh, the year gone by. Of course, it's a poem uh, of Robert Burns, dates back to 1788 when he penned it, and it was, it was coined and brought together with a very traditional little folk tune. It's sung at funerals. At, at some Scottish universities still today, it's sung at graduation ceremonies. It's a song that always ends the Boy Scout International Jamboree. Don't ask me how I know that. <coughs> But we know it best because someone thought, when so many of the population have had a little bit too much to drink, they thought it wise to start a tradition. A tradition where slightly inebriated people would stand up uh, beside each other. They would cross their arms to lose their balance slightly, link hands with the people beside them, and then vigorously shake while shouting a particular song in someone's ear. The song being a song they probably can't even spell, Old Lang Syne. The song is a marker of transition from what has gone to what will be. Undergraduate to graduate, 2011 to 2012. The bells chime, we sing to remember the year gone by, the Old Lang Syne, the old times. But it also marks and looks forward to the new dawn of the new year and what that will be. In those first couple of verses of the passage you just heard read, there's no song. Uh, In fact, there's there's no tradition. It's so far from tradition because this is a unique occurrence in the the history of the whole world. But the the old Lang Syne are ending. The old times are ending. And something new is beginning. Uh, As I put on the outline, the end of one age, it's the dawn of a new. Look at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. If you can just flip back in in chapter 28, why don't you just go back to verse uh, 5 and then verse 7 as well. You'll see there, the the angel of the Lord is speaking to the two Marys at Jesus' tomb. Verse 5, the angel said, uh, he's been, he was crucified. Verse 7 He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Uh, It's pointed back, it's saying that the age of the incarnate Lord Jesus and his earthly ministry, they're coming to an end. The substitutionary atoning work of the cross where Jesus took on himself the punishment that we deserve before God's justice. That greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. It's followed by the vindication of of Jesus in his resurrection. The innocent one who's experienced hell so that we don't have to is raised to new life and defeating the greatest enemy that we know, death itself, reversing what Adam and Eve wrought on humanity in the garden. Jesus was crucified, now is risen. 
But before he resumes his rightful place at the right hand of his father in glory, before this age of Jesus' earthly ministry ends, he's going to speak to the 11 disciples that are left. This is the dawn of a new age, the age when Jesus will be exalted and glorified in heaven, when he'll be no longer leading these disciples, instructing them in person, face to face with them as a man in Galilee. But rather he will now be with them in the new era, this new age, by his spirit, in their hearts, guiding them, enabling them. What we're seeing here is the dawn of a new age. There are 11 disciples, because if you flick back just to to chapter 27, if you want to look at that, you'll see Judas, who betrayed uh, Jesus for just mere 30 pieces of silver, was seized with remorse, he says, and he hung himself, for he betrayed innocent blood. Hence, verse 16, the 11, not the 12, the 11, in obedience... Follow the instruction of Jesus in chapter 28, verse 7, and meet him in Galilee. Galilee, of course, is a place where much of Jesus' earthly ministry um, happened. He spent so much of his time there, teaching and preaching and healing the sick. So where his earthly ministry began and took place, so too will this new era begin of his ministry, his wider heavenly ministry. They go up a mountain. We're not totally sure which one. Literally, it just means they go into the hills. And that's common throughout the Bible, isn't it? When God speaks, he speaks regularly up mountains, in high places. Think of Moses in Exodus 31, as he goes up to receive the law where God speaks and writes on tablets of stone with his finger. So the eleven obey Jesus. They go to this mountainside in Galilee, a humble place, Galilee was. But there is a humble king who has risen and will be glorified. A a, a king who had very humble beginnings in a stable bear, as we remember just a few weeks ago. And he's now with a humble bunch of 11 men. Who when they saw Jesus, I guess they responded as we might have done. Look at verse 17. They saw him. Two responses. They worshipped him, didn't they? But some doubted. The doubt there is a word that um, could easily be understood, and it is elsewhere in the Bible, as an uncertainty. It's a hesitation. And we can understand that, I hope, can't we? Now, standing before the eleven chosen disciples of Jesus is a man that many of them have given up everything in order to follow him. A man that had rebuked them continually throughout the gospel accounts for their lack of faith. A man that they had seen brutally nailed to a cross. A man that they had seen buried in and secured in a tomb. A man who they'd recently abandoned and denied. But now they see this man standing before them. I guess there are mixed emotions, aren't there? There must be fear, awe, confusion, joy. We can only speculate on those, but what we know is that they did two things. They worshipped Jesus, and some for a moment doubted. 
This is a unique moment in history. It's the end of one age and the, the dawn of a new. Some of the 11 in verse 17 have a moment of hesitation. It is a doubt. And when we consider the magnitude of the situation and of what Jesus will speak to them about in just what, in a moment, it is no surprise, is it, that there's a moment of hesitation in their recognition and understanding of who he is. The 11 are about to hear some very sobering words that will usher in a new age in which they will play this huge role as well. An age that is for us. It's for you and me. It will be an all-consuming time for these disciples because for some of them it will mean that it will cost them their lives. It will be all-reaching. It will go out to all nations, as we'll see, with all the authority of the king of all the world. And when they saw Jesus, yes, some of them doubted for a moment, but they also worshipped him. They showed their respect and their dependence on him, as we ought to, as Nathan reminded us at the beginning. But let's get to verse 18. It is so critical because it reassures these doubting disciples. But it so wonderfully bridges the gap between the almighty, powerful, risen Lord Jesus And weak and feeble people like you and me. People who would sometimes, when feeling low, would rather these words that we're about to look at were never spoken. People who would rather their faith is private. uh, Something that's never to be mentioned amongst friends and colleagues. I, I think to make disciples, doesn't it sound a bit tiring? A bit laborious? Even risky? Well, verse 18 is the fuel for what is to come. But if we take out verse 18, we'll be left, uh, in a sense, with an empty tank and soon fail and falter. I I, I kind of, I liken verse 18. It's like an eternal Red Bull, isn't it? can of Red Bull. Don't touch the stuff, but it's pretty dangerous. But it, it, it energizes. It gives us everything we need. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. First thing, Jesus came with all authority. He stands there before them with every piece of authority that could be bestowed on him. Now that is not to say that Jesus, uh, throughout his earthly ministry, has not demonstrated that he has authority over all things. Oh, you can think back, we've looked through it on a number of occasions at the different gospel accounts uh, of what he has authority over, calming storm, healing the sick, forgiving sin, even raising people from the dead. And we spent a couple of weeks, didn't we, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, where those things are demonstrated again and again. One scholar put it this way, though, just to explain what the transition that's been made. It's not that Jesus' authority per se that becomes more absolute. He's always had absolute authority. Rather, he says, spheres in which now he exercises absolute authority are enlarged to include all heaven and earth. That is, Jesus' authority now goes out to the whole universe. The baby Jesus, whom the Magi came to worship and honour as king, who was humiliated on the cross, now stands resurrected before these men. And all authority throughout the whole heavens and the earth, has been given to him by his Father to vindicate him. 
and usher in this new era in which he is the king of kings and has all authority over everything. 600 years before this moment in Babylon, God gave visions to a man called Daniel, a prophet. The sheer scale of what all authority means in Matthew chapter 8 is spelled out in in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. And what we're seeing in Matthew chapter 20 is fulfillment of that prophecy back in Daniel. It says this in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. In my vision, that's Daniel's, at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, the Father there, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting, that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus warned, actually, the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin, back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, that this son of man, this this prophecy, was going to come to pass. One with ultimate authority was coming. And now Jesus stands before the disciples, yes, once bruised and nailed to a cross of shame, as our suffering redeemer. But finally, vindicated, he's given universal power. All authority. Essentially he's become everything he's promised that he would be. We're going to sing in a moment at the end this great hymn. And it kind of sums up that. Jesus is the name high over all. In hell or earth or sky. Everywhere. Angels and men before it fall. And devils fear and fly. You see, what we're seeing here is such a turning point, but it is also such a comfort and reassurance. See, whatever is to come, for each of us, Jesus is over it. He's Lord over all of it. Jesus was offered, of course, something else, wasn't he? One might say the easy option. But Jesus, he remained faithful for each one of us. He didn't succumb himself to the allures of Satan, to... And go his way. Do you remember what Satan offered him? Back in chapter 4 of this gospel. Satan Satan took him to another high place. And got him to look over all the kingdoms of the earth. And all the delights and the splendor of them. In chapter 4 verse 9 he says this. "All All this I will give you. If you bow down and worship me. Of course that's a very good offer isn't it? But do you see the contrast? In what the devil can offer Jesus. And what his father can bestow on him. Satan couldn't actually in reality offer anything that he, that he did offer. But even if he could, it wouldn't compare, would it? But by the way of suffering obedience, Jesus has received far more than Satan could ever offer. Because now, bestowed on by his Father, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, the allure of Satan in schemes can so often, can't they? They can seem to offer us all so much. And at times it will cost us to obey God, follow his will. But the way of suffering obedience always, always leads to so much more than Satan can ever offer us. But why do we need to know? Why do you and I need to know that Jesus has all authority? We need to know this lest we trust in the power and the authority either of ourselves 
or of anyone else here. Now today we flagged up that we're, we're part of this kind of family of churches called, called Commission. It's a network. It's a, a wonderfully benevolent kind of a movement which has started a few small churches like ourselves. They've supported us financially uh, for a number of years now um, with prayer and with all sorts of support. And we should be so thankful for their godly sacrifice. But if we begin to trust in a network, uh, a movement of churches, depending on this commission thing, and I fear at times we sometimes do as a small church, If that is what we do, then we fail to trust solely in the Lord of all, the one who has all authority. And thankfully, the churches of all this little network of churches think the same in that regard. Our partnership is practically beneficial, but never can we become dependent on each other. And that is why I love the name of this church. We are Christ's church here in Illsfield. We belong to him and we belong to him alone. We're united in him and we're united in him alone. And we trust in him and him alone. And we, if you like, fall on our knees and rest in his power and all his awesome authority alone. Jesus came with all authority. It is great comfort, isn't it? Secondly, he calls us to make disciples of all nations, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And we'll go on, verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, there's only one imperative in this passage, one instruction that comes out. And that is to make disciples of all nations. The the restriction that was once given to the disciples back in chapter 10 of this this gospel, verses 5 and 6... That their mission was only to go out to Israel, to the Jews. That is now being lifted. The eternal Son of Man, fulfilling Daniel 7, who has all authority in heaven and earth, requires disciples. He requires followers in all the nations of the earth. The commission of our king, uh, our goal under the authority of the king, Our aim enabled with the power of the king is to make disciples. And our eternal king, the Lord Jesus, calls us to be involved in a work that makes others what we are ourselves if we are disciples of Christ. What is it to be a disciple? Well, it's been mapped out, hasn't it, throughout the whole gospel. And you can read that, and if you want to, you can read the epistles later. All the letters that these disciples have written of how to become and remain a disciple of Christ. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. Again and again, he's shown the religious authorities, and even his family as well, that those privileges of religious upbringing, of of family um, ties, they are not acceptable criteria as He's made very plain and clear and quite provocatively back in chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel. As he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? As they were waiting outside this kind of crowded room, pointing his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. 
You see, disciples, Jesus defines it, are those who obey and follow the Lord Jesus, who obey the will of God, trusting in him. So our calling, our commission, is first and foremost, is to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We speak of him and him alone. We help people understand him and him alone with clarity and hopefully with a bit of winsome kind of grace as well. We avoid trying to avoid complications so that Christ can become their authority clearly and they know how to accept his ways and submit to his rule in their lives. See, to make someone a disciple of Christ is is to draw them to the beauty that we know in the Lord Jesus, the gospel of the great good news of what he's achieved for us on the cross. Because that is where we can find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Uh, the Queen was brilliant, wasn't she, in a New Year's speech? I hope you listened to that. I didn't listen to it live. I mean, I hope not New Year, a Christmas speech. She said this. Uh, I think it was, it's remarkable, and we should thank God for her. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. How remarkable that our monarch said that. What does Earlsville need more than anything else? It needs to become disciples of Christ, knowing that forgiving love that a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ can know, trusting in his eternal saving power. I guess so, if you're anything like me, sinful and wretched and pretty miserable sometimes, at times you will have discounted yourself from verses like this. Have you done that as you've read them? Thinking, oh, this is what missionaries do, isn't it? Verse 19, we can ignore that. That's for those people that go off somewhere around the world. They're the ones that go to all nations. We'll just stay here in comfortable, nice little oils filled and sit pretty. Thank you very much. Well, Christ's church, wherever we find ourselves, can never dismiss ourselves from this call. All nations means all without exception. Of course, that includes Great Britain, and it includes London, and it includes Hillsfield. But as some of those little videos mentioned, we have an amazing privilege, don't we, in London, that all nations come to us. Apparently 40 to 50% of the population of London wasn't even born in this country. Nations descend on this great city of ours, and we have the privilege of making Christ known to so many people before they head off back to their own countries again. So if you want to learn Polish, you have a, you know, a, an ability with languages, do it. There are thousands of Polish people around here who need to hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. But likewise, if you are called to go away to other nations um, in this world, then know that Christ Church Earlsfield, Christ Church in Earlsfield, will support you all the way. Because we need to make disciples of all nations. It's what we do. Some of you sent me an article this week uh, from the, uh, well, quite a few people did actually. I don't know why I needed to hear it, but everyone seemed to send it to me. Um, of, uh, it was an article from the Telegraph newspaper. A very famous American pastor tweeted it, and some of you picked up on it and sent it to me. And the article basically spelt out the horrifying uh, kind of reality of our country in that church attendance has dropped from 50% of the population in this country attended church in 1850. By 2005, 
that had dropped to just over 6%. 50% to 6%. But the times they are a-changing, as Dylan once sang. And it, what the article noted, it was amazing, it said, in periods of austerity within history, that trend has been bucked. It has slightly you know, moved the graph up a little bit. And what we're seeing now is a greater attendance of church in the last year or so than we had three or four years ago. And we need to pray that that 6% increases all the more. But please do not forget all the nations. It's tempting to look, as we look at this verse, out there to, to you know, further afield. But all the nations does include all of the people around here as well. And the middle classes that you and I sit beside in the offices and run beside at the gym and live beside in this lovely suburb called Earlsfield. There are many different people here. And if 6% is the national average, I think I've worked out with the census, it is less than 2% in Earlsfield that attend uh, churches. We need to make disciples, don't we? And hear this call of Christ. Now there are three participles, you know, linking active words that feed from this one great commission, this instruction to make disciples. And they're simple. They just say, go, baptize, and teach. Do you see those three there? Even though they're not strictly instructions, because they're linked with that make disciples word, they have kind of an instructional kind of force to them, if you like. So we're to go, simply, wherever God chooses us to go. And that may mean, realistically, it may mean a lifetime of getting on a tube or a train, ploughing into London, coming back, and living a life of a commuter. It may mean a life of being in Earlsfield, commuting and going and making disciples here. That may be true. It may be meaning you need to go to some deepest part of Africa and go and make disciples of Christ there. You'll need to learn a language if you need to do that. You'll need to translate the Bible into that language. And you'll need to proclaim the gospel to those people and risk your life in the process. Do you know what the average life expectancy of missionaries were in the 1800s leaving this country? The average life expectancy was less than two years. But still thousands upon thousands of men left left these shores to go and proclaim the gospel uh, to people um, around the world. That might be you. And if it is, hear God speaking to you. Go. Go. Wherever we are, we go. We don't sit around waiting for a time or an occasion. We go and make disciples for Christ. Secondly, we baptize. Baptize, Baptism is a sign of repentance, of turning to God, of being a disciple of Jesus. It symbolically, doesn't it, it represents being purified by Jesus and being part of his covenant people, a covenant community like a church. And Jesus here is instituting that practice which has gone on for generations to this day in churches around the world. Baptism is a public commitment and is literally saying I'm being, I've been brought into the name of Jesus, implying an allegiance with him. You baptise Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So not just into um, solely into Jesus, but into the, the, the Godhead. God, Father, Son and Spirit. And if you are a Christian, if you have turned to God in repentance and put your faith and trust in him, then you ought to be baptised. It is your public commitment to Christ 
And it's also our, as a church, corporate commitment to you. If you'd like to talk to me about that later, please do. To make disciples, we go, we baptise, and thirdly, we teach. We're going to move on to our third point here. And you'll see at the beginning of verse 20. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I don't want to say too much at this point. We're, we're kind of coming to a close. But the disciples are called to teach, aren't they? Not, not anything of their own making. But rather, it says, everything I have commanded you. To make disciples is not, to com- is not complete unless it leads to a life of obedience to the commands of Jesus. All of them. So to make disciples is not a, a, a one-time process. It goes on and on and on throughout people's lives. We are discipled in Christ. Notice again that it, the everything I've commanded. Literally that re- reads, all things. It is sometimes very tempting isn't it, when you're speaking to non-Christians or people who are kind of struggling in their faith to water down perhaps some of the ethical or moral teaching within uh, the Bible. To shy away from the cost of being a Christian as we're explaining the gospel to people. Uh, it's, it's tempting, but hear the call. Everything I have commanded you. Likewise, we must not limit the scale of our inadequacy before the Lord God. We are all sinners. Nothing less, nothing more. But it is sinners, it is to sinners that Jesus has come. And we love him so much for that. We're going to sing in a moment. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fear and turns their hell to heaven. That's what we're in the business of telling people about. Please pray for me this week as we uh, we go towards uh, having Christianity explored. Uh, I have to say I've lost quite a lot of sleep over this Um, I'm really excited by it but I've lost a lot of sleep because I've not been trusting in Christ I've been worried about what I might do but I need to trust in we all need to trust in Christ who has all authority he will bring who he chooses we just need to be obedient to the call to go and make disciples and teaching people to obey everything that Jesus has commanded Everything. I cannot water it down. Wouldn't it be thrilling if in a few months we would have something like a baptism service here and we would sing together something like Jesus is the name high over all. That's our aim, isn't it? Let's go and make disciples in whatever way we can, wherever you are, with whomever you meet and know. Resting assured that we do so in the power of the one who has all authority. Are you nervous? I think Jesus knew you would be. Hence why he finishes as he does. Look at the end of verse 20. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. So we finish assured that Jesus is with us all our days, literally. It's like a dad teaching his child to ride a bike. You know, he he tells the child to pedal. You know, there's no amount of, you know, go! Go oh, on, pedal! You know, you sort of, come on, get. That's with boys anyway. I don't know how to do girls. But, you know, you give them, you, they make progress. You give them a go, oh, go on, go, off you go for it. But you're always there. You're always there to guide and to keep them safe. And if we go and make disciples, we have to know that Jesus is with us. Do you see how the gospel has come in full circle? At Jesus' birth, he's given two names. He's given the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. He's given the name Emmanuel because he is God with 
us. Do you see how he hasn't let us down? I am with you always. If we are a disciple of Christ, seeking to make other disciples of Christ, then Jesus will be with us every moment of every day. Does this passage just to apply to the 11 in this story? Some people like to, like to dismiss it that way. But no, because Jesus here promises that he will be with us, and it's plural, to the very end of the age. The 11 only lasted a few years, but he's going to be to the end of the age to include all of us and all that follow us in Christ. This is not just a cosy reassurance, but is a necessary equipping for the work ahead for each of us. Jesus, by his spirit, now resides in our hearts if we have followed him and trusted in him. So when you and I begin to flounder this week, as we try and sort of splutter out some sentence which says, would you, would you like to come? Uh, uh, Christianity explored. It's a great thing. And we get all our words mixed up. We must know that Jesus is there to give us confidence to use our inadequacies to make disciples for Christ in Ellsfield. Let me finish with some of these words we're about to sing. His only righteousness I show, his saving grace proclaim. Tis all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. In the last verse, I hope we sing this loud. Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name. Preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. Let me close with this, my friends. Um, If we are Christ Church Earlsfield, if we are Christ's church in Earlsfield, then we need to hear this call from him. Go. Make disciples of all nations. But hear the assuring promise. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray as we close. I guess our hearts resonate with uh, the 11. Some parts of us want to fall down and worship you. You are the glorious king who has all authority. Everything that Daniel spoke of has come to fruition. And you are the king over all, the eternal one who has dominion over all things. But with that authority, you have given us a commission. To go and make disciples of all nations. And Lord... Like the 11, there is some fear, there's some trembling. We doubt that you have the authority to, to give it that sometimes. But we know, as we look at these words, that you can equip us, use us, despite all our failings, to fulfill your purposes. We pray that you do that amongst us this week. For your glory we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing and Philip's going to run back. We're going to blast this great old hymn out uh, with the organ. You ready, Philip? Let's stand. Let's sing.